0: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Alex Wade, the author of Playback, a genealogy of 1980s British video games. Hi, Alex.
1: Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me today.
0: Yes. So I'm wondering if you could start out by talking about how you got interested in this topic and and why you wanted to write this book.
1: So I think this probably goes back to my undergraduate days when I was uh, studying at at Keele University in, in the UK. And... I was, it was, I was doing a sociology uh, undergraduate degree and I was going through all the normal stuff that, you know, sociologists go through, like population and class and things like that. And I just, I just thought, well, one of the kind of um, hints that you get about, you know, writing about things is write about what you know. And I thought, well, I've, I've played video games all my life, so I'll write about games and I wrote a dissertation on it. And um it won it won the best dissertation prize for sociology in that year. And after that I took it forwards and I wrote my doctorate on, on a similar kind of topic around games. And I could see even at that point there was kind of there was a lot of stuff around history and games that wasn't that wasn't been explored. And I, I touched on it being my doctorate. Um, and then I, I took it forwards from this book. So the the inspiration really comes from the fact that it's it's such a massive topic, but very few people will will kind of um, We'll explore it. And in, in actual fact, although this is a book about uh, UK video games, most of the interest does seem to come from the US, which is which is strange. Um, and I think that it, it's interesting the way that certainly American audiences have responded to it. It's not necessarily been something that has been picked up so much in the UK, but it's been much more prevalent in, in the US, which is which is heartening. But then again it's it's kind of disappointing that perhaps we don't value our culture around games quite as much as as other people
0: do. Right. I thought that, and you talked about that a bit, about how most of the scholarship is written around gaming in the United States and not looking at gaming in the UK or outside of the United States. So that sort of gets at that idea as well, it seems. So you start out with um, sort of setting this up and talking about Habitus and looking at sort of, Bedroom cultures and, and the different avenues that you're going to look at. So, is there anything you want to sort of start out by, sort of grounding us in that sort of framework that you look at as we start to talk about the rest of your book?
1: Well, I think I think the most important thing is to say, going back to what you just said about kind of U.S. gaming and, and things like that, and, and there's so many narratives in that area that there is that there is a prevalence of a U.S. and it, it's unfortunate. It's, it's it's Japanese or U.S. centric, and that's because the hardware and the software. Commercially has often been seen as, as being from those areas, and you have people who will write. Mark JP Wolf writes some wonderful stuff on on gaming, um, but it does have that. Well, the 2014 book that he wrote before the crash does have a very kind of US-centric view. Whereas for us in 1983, the video game industry was kind of collapsing in the US, but in, in the UK it was kind of taking off in a big way there. So I think it's important to see that there are different types of histories, and so when I'm Coming at it from a kind of a genealogical perspective, it's really about the fact that it's it, there are many histories around games, as there are about everything, and it's not just one that should be seen as dominant. So this was to kind of repurpose that, I guess. And there are a lot of people that you know in Australia and across Europe that try to do the same thing. But I also think that it's important to speak to those kind of major areas as well, like Japan and the US, not um, understate the amount of influence there is there. And I think that that really comes through in. certainly in the first and second chapters, you talk about where the game comes from, and it is, you know, video games originated in the US. So what I've tried to do is bring an international angle to it, and it's that kind of habitus, so people who were involved in, you know, railway or railroad clubs in the US, and they were working on, you know, uh, nuclear weapons programs. So it's it's really to say that, yes, this is specifically British, but it's a British take on, you know, what is US culture, I guess, in that respect. So... I think it's important to cut was really the grounding of that book. It's not just the UK. It's meant to be a kind of bringing everything to bear on, on the UK and understanding where it started and kind of where it's going as well. All
0: right. And so can you talk a little bit about to the, um, oh, could you talk a little bit more, maybe I should say, about that history and sort of how you historically positioned the UK? You talk a bit about, you know, the moral panic and that kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of context and grounding?
1: Yeah, sure. So Martin Amos is one of our um, you know, greatest, well, greatest writers in the late 20th century. And I think in 1982, he wrote something called Invasion of the Space Invaders. And this is quite a, it's, I say it's not, a, it's not rare, it's an uncommon text. And it's actually something that Martin Ames himself kind of disavows. So he's he doesn't really list it in his you know his publications, and he 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 won't talk about the book. And yet yeah, it's it's a wonderful text, beautifully illustrated. And in there he he has a forward by Steven uh, Spielberg as well. He was very into gaming at that time as well. And so he's he's one of the kind of early people who's positioning arcade games certainly within that that context. And for us in in the UK when we were playing. Games, the arcades, or the amusement arcades where video games were located, would be the kind of place where a lot of these moral panics, as you call it, would would happen, and, and that's the kind of thing that we talk about <clears> that's this, this talked about in the book is the fact that people would, especially young people, would hang around in these arcades, and they wouldn't just be for games; they would be, you know, places where they would smoke um they would um take drugs for instance there's, there's you know there's, there's lots of studies on those kind of things but eventually it got it it kind of got out of control so it became the fact that you know it would you know children would be seen to be doing kind of illicit acts with all kinds of people to get money and one of the things that is actually in in the book that, that um george fowkes who was an mp at the time he was a member of parliament at the time he said that a, a a, ch- um, a child had undertaken an act with a with a member of the clergy, so that he could get money to put uh, money into arcade games. But this was where the locus was. So, you know, these were kind of Al Alcorn talked talk some about being naughty places where interesting things might happen, and that's the focus of the kind of moral panic. But the transition to a new technology is something that you know we see all the time. So, although with arcade games it was seen as something potentially dangerous. We see the same kind of thing with social media now, and the way that our kids use it. So these kind of things are replicated over generations. And those are the kind of points that I tried to make that, yes, it, it could be seen as dangerous, but our reaction to it is just as dangerous as well. So that was one of them. And then there, there's, there's several other kind of things around that. So the arcade is one of the key moral panics. But then also these arcade games would be converted onto um, hardware, computers, um, and basically, they'd be copied and there wouldn't be any um, notion of, of, there is a notion of copyright, but it seemed to be ignored by a lot, of, a lot of coders and they would, you know, effectively have to negotiate with industry people around that. So there are a lot of angles around that. People spend a lot of time in their bedrooms playing games. Of course, that happens with kids now. And that's what was happening then. So you can see it kind of, you know, through 40 years or 30 or 40 years of history, the more things change effectively, the more they stay the same.
0: Right. Yes, and, and I say that too as I have my son upstairs playing. Yeah, Fortnite is the the new big. I don't know in the UK, but in the US, it's Fortnite, right? Um, but so can we talk a little bit about that bedroom culture because I thought how you sort of brought that in was very interesting in the work that I do. I look a lot at girls at bedroom culture, but you sort of you know you sort of also apply that to video gaming, which becomes often a very male-centric topic. So can you talk about that idea of bedroom culture and how you sort of talk about that in your
1: book? Sure. I think one of the interesting things is Irving Goffman is one, you know, one of the U.S.'s great sociologists, and he talks uh, about the kind of secret consumption that goes on within bedrooms. And expressly, you know, Goffman would be talking about that as being um, what young girls, would, so young young women would do. So they might be, you know, 13 or 14 and the same kind of thing applies to the the centre for contemporary critical studies in in the UK. Quite often, those bedroom cultures, as you, as you rightly say, were were looking at, at girls in a kind of hidden culture that would go on to so the posters that would be on the walls, the access to, to to you know telephones and things like that, so they could arrange dates with 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 girlfriends and with boyfriends as well. And it was strange to see that, actually, when, when you go back to that literature, and it's such a rich literature, and there's so, there's so much wonderful stuff in there, that actually that's the study around kind of bedroom cultures ends pretty much just as the kind of – as bedroom coding takes off. So for, so, for us in the UK, bedroom coding is a big thing. So, what happened was, you know, usually it would be young males, and they could be between, you know, 13 and 19 so there would still be a school that effectively go into their bedrooms and play games, and then they would learn how to code them as well. So they'd learn how to program these games. and they would spend hours upon hours kind of integrating with the technology that was there um, and then programming these games individually, maybe send them off to publishers, and then when the you know the publishers was, would then you know sell them on. So you have this kind of very private activity which is which is very close to a cottage industry, you know very kind of close relationship with the means of production and the actual product at the end of it but then that becomes very public in the sense that it's it's promoted publicly through publishers but then you have the magazines at the other end as well who are also advertising it reviewing it pushing it doing those kind of things so it's really interesting that it was just at that point i think that was really the key thing for me that that kind of habitus if you like was was kind of ignored by by scholars in many ways. And I think that that was a real shame because there was a massive opportunity for for looking at this very rich, rich area. But it's also it's also worth mentioning the kind of gender angle here because during the 1980s there were a lot of uh, there were some studies done on on girls and gaming and it was at that point it was pretty much a 50-50 split. So you know girls would, would game. Quite often they would do it in kind of front rooms, lounges, those kind of things as a family Thing, Whereas boys would perhaps do it more privately. And then over time, um, it became less so. So it would be more about um, boys doing it rather than girls. And Graham Kirkpatrick kind of picks up on that, that it becomes quite a misogynist kind of culture, which I I do agree with up to a certain point. But I think he overstates the case a little bit. But it's it's interesting to see that that also has become quite apparent. So you've had things like Gamergate, in the US, which became a kind of international mm-hmm. problem um, or an international mm-hmm. issue, um, and that kind of thing, I think it all kind of develops in that kind of area. So it's 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 interesting to see again historically. You can, if you trace back, you can see where these things have come from over time. So it's that's really, um, I think that's fascinating. I think there's a lot more in that as well.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because it, it sort of parallels with um, comics, right? Like younger boys and girls, even sort of even split with comics, but we get to now and we look at it very different. Um, In that, And you sort of touched on it, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that copying culture and that idea of the copying culture, because it seems to be a very important aspect of how sort of these gaming networks were created and kept going.
1: Yeah, that that is a big thing. And it certainly certainly seemed to be a big thing in Europe at the time. So and again, that, that's the influence of technology in the bedroom. So, during during the nineteen eighties, the same, the same I'm sure was true in the US as well. What would happen was you have things that we would call them ghetto blasters or um, things like that, and you know there would be large kind oh. of hi fi's with two speakers on them. But interestingly, we also, they also have two cassette uh, decks on them as well. So in the UK, we used cassette tapes or ana- analog cassette tapes, and. You would you would borrow a game off a friend, and you would use the other the other cassette tape to or the cassette deck to to copy that game, and then you would distribute that in kind of playgrounds. People would sell them on, um, and as as that technology became more kind of um, advanced around discs and things like that, that became quite a the, the mod scene became quite big in Europe. But before that point, actually, I think it's kind of it's it's highlighted in in the book. What happens is that it goes behind the iron curtain effectively. So you go into Poland and there's a guy there called, I think his name's Tchaikovsky. And effectively he's got a kind of whole copying network set up where he's, he's making copies of games and then he's distributing them throughout Eastern Europe. This is before, you know, the USSR had fallen in the 1980s. And then, um he said he was i mean i don't know how much of this is actually true it's kind in his second hand data that that have been used, but he was saying that he was using the Polish olympic team to to get new titles and he was distributing it through them so I think that those networks that are in place they 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 come from a very private a private place with the with the bedroom but the technologies that were there enabled this to spread very very quickly and under the radar as well because people just it was it was going on and you know people were quite accepting of it. It wasn't a professional industry. You know, you'd sell basically you'd say you'd sell one copy and then there would be ten bootleg copies um you know shared amongst friends. So if you sold one one copy for ten pounds effectively you're missing out another hundred pounds worth of sales. And although discs tried to stop doing that, it didn't really stop it. It just those networks were already embedded and they're still used they're still used to this day in many respects as well. So it's I think that's um that's that's a really key part of how it got people, especially young young boys, interested in some well, young boys. I say, young like fourteen year old boys, interest interested mm-hmm. in in gaming um, because they were able to do this kind of away from the, the surveillance of their parents, and they could do that in bedrooms, like with comics, as you said, and like with magazines for, for girls as well.
0: And I'm guessing it was in some ways cheaper for them to be able to do that. Then. Well, yeah,
1: yeah, it would be. I mean, I'm speaking from personal experience, but I, you know, I, I would rent rent a game off someone. So someone would actually come round my house, or come round to my dad's house. It would have been with um you know, a car, and they would. It is, it is like a boot, a boot sale. You'd open know, the boot, and in the boot, they'd have loads of games, and you'd rent the game off them, and then take it off them for a week, copy it, give it to your friends, then copy it, and then you know, you do it like on a kind of rotary basis so each friend would take you know one or two games each week and they would so you end up with six games effectively each week that you owed. you didn't have to go and buy them so you, a game would cost say 10 pounds to buy but it'd be one pound 50 to to kind of hire for a week and it's, it's interesting the way those those kind of things perpetuated the technology allowed it but there were you know these networks were they're quite informal they would be done through through playgrounds where people were making money on the on the back of, of renting these games as well so you would be it'd be massively cheaper you just buy five you know five blank tapes for for say five pounds and then you could fill it up with games you know 90 minutes probably fit three or four games on it so it was quite it was quite different in those respects where you have that kind of immediate access to, to tapes and things like that which we kind of a bit more distance from technology now it's more the platforms are more locked down unless you you know a coder it's, it's difficult to kind of get to the the kind of different areas so it was a lot more immediate. It's like coding to metal, if you like.
0: Right. Yeah. And no, that makes sense. So. And you move from, so this bedroom culture is really important and and you brought this up earlier, but I'd like you to talk maybe a little bit more too. then you move into the arcades, right? And and what that means and and so that subculture. And so can you talk a bit more about that and the importance of the arcades in your work?
1: Yeah, sure. I think one of the things is that we're starting to be picked up in some of the literature that I, I mentioned it in there, but I think it's becoming kind of more evident as as, as time goes on is the fact that um although these were these were places effectively that were um based around kind of moral panics, and that would be the same in the u s as it would be in the u k but it was it was also the fact that these were also places that you know were embedded in, in other areas as well so I'll give the example of rand Corporation where people would play war games underground, and you know what for me I'm really asking what's the difference between you know elites kind of doing it rand these very clever people probably bring to elite US universities and then people, um, kids, and not just kids, but all kinds of sections of society would be doing it in arcades. They would effectively be using games like Missile Command or Defender, which give this kind of very Cold War kind of paranoia feel to, to the whole Um to the whole kind of culture. So if you if you watch if you watch war games, for instance, it's got that kind of thing mm-hmm. that's attached to it. The, the, the original, the nineteen eighty three original, not the, not yes. the remake. Um, and <laughs>
0: now the, good, the one. good one, yeah,
1: the original. So that is really, that's. I mean, I think that's really the key thing here. That this this technology is not just it's not just a subculture that is causing a moral panic, but this is a, a subculture that's come technologically from a a global panic, and it is effectively driven by Cold War technologies. And it's not just to do with the technology that's used on screen or the development of the games, but it's the content of those games as well. So Missile Command is about um, protecting cities from attack. Um, And then you've got space invaders. So you've got, you know, aliens coming down and that kind of, you know, the the B-movie kind of thing that comes from that, you know, aliens, you know, attacking the world, which is something that was, you know, which never really goes away, but it, it was. It seemed to be the late late 20th century was very much into that kind of thing. So it's not just kind of one area of subculture. I think there's lots of things that feed into this. And I think that kind of, that influence of technology, I don't want to say it's, it's technologically determined, but you can't underestimate the influence that humans have when they, they use technologies in certain ways. And eventually all technology are going to be used for either sex or games. That's what happens eventually you know the same happens with the internet you know it's it it all ultimately all must be always becomes about those kind of things very kind of base things and usually around enjoyment and it doesn't matter whether you're you know someone who's trying to prevent or start a nuclear war or someone who's you know looking to waste a few a few coins passing the time it almost always just come back to games and, and you know enjoyment and war games are one of those areas
0: So and you mentioned sort of you talk about sort of what it comes back to, but you also in this chapter um, talk about sort of gambling and sort of arcade games and wealth and employment and sort of that idea of gaming the game. So can you talk a little bit about that, too, and how that applies to your work?
1: Yeah, sure. So that I mean, that, that's really, really interesting because what we've picked up on there is that I did some kind of uh, primary oh. interviews with people who worked in, in arcades during the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, and what they were saying was that this that you would have over time things would start saying Victorian Britain that amusement arcades were places where people who were who who were working all of the time would go to spend their time. So eventually, I think in the in the late nineteenth century the UK government said you can have kind of certain times off. So you can have holidays, um, mandatory holidays, like bank holidays, we have call them here. So it'd be public holidays where people have that time off. And they would go to these places like Blackpool, for instance, or Southend, and they would spend time spending money, and originally but at that point, so, you know, 130, 140 years ago, that would be around gambling. And a lot of those were about, you know, the the joy of the carnival, if you like, so people would go there and it wasn't really the fact they were spending a lot of money, but they would be spending a certain amount of money on leisure. So the same kind of thing becomes apparent when you think about places like Las Vegas, for instance, you know, people would go there and spend money. Um, in the pursuit of either getting money or just for the, the sheer enjoyment of just, you know, experiencing kind of carnival and excess as Bataille would say. And when I, when I kind of met with these people, they were saying that it, it was almost uniformly when they were um, kind of growing up, that they would have started in these kind of electromechanicals. So they would start with pinball and pinball was, was a really, really big thing in the U S and that would have started out as a as a gambling game. And as the laws changed over time, um, like in Chicago and New York, for instance, you know it would become more, less about luck and more about and more about skill. And I think eventually it, it was it took it took New York an awful long time to get to the point where they would allow machines like pinball to actually give credits back because they've always seen as gambling. And that's the hook, really. So gambling is the hook, and a lot of those things that talk that those people talk about there is a fact that they would start off by gambling and then they would progress to games. But those things around those methods of gambling never really went away. So one interviewee was saying that, you know, he would, um, he would kind of game different games. So he would look to see which, which gamblers were going to pay out and he would, um, he would play that gambler, he'd play that machine, and he'd wait for that when that machine paid out, he'd take that money and then he'd put it into the arcade into the video games. And also there's I think there's an example from there who's who's saying that you know in change machines you could you could kind of make a block of ice effectively look looked like a 50 pence piece, put it into a machine, and you'd get money out. But the interesting thing was they wouldn't just steal the money, they wouldn't just take the money from there. What they would do was they would put the money back into the into the arcade machines. So what you what you have is a kind of internal economy, if you like. The money never really goes out, it just circulates, even though basically people are stealing, but they're only they seem to be only stealing from each other in many respects. So it's it and it is that that thing kind of applies in many in many in, in many kind of walks of life. Certainly in sociology, you can say that people, you know poor people effectively steal from poor people and rich people steal from you know rich people. And that's how that works. It becomes very kind of incestuous is maybe be too strong a word but it's certainly kind of inward looking and that I think that's those kind of dynamics are interesting and all of those people that I interviewed there they started gaming in the 1970s and gaming and gambling and they're still doing the same thing today and they still love both and they still love gaming and they still love gambling it's one of those things that really hooks you and I don't really want to talk about addiction because I'm not really an expert of it. But you can see that that is kind of the habitus, yeah. if you like, that Bourdieu talks about. Is it's ingrained in them and it's reproduced over time. They can't let it go, even though the professional gambler who was he was you know pulling in maybe three thousand pounds on every trip to from Portsmouth to Bilbao on a, on a, a ferry. So his professional gambler he'd be earning a lot of money. He's taken two hundred and fifty thousand pounds of, of his own money. And put it into a video game arcade, and that kind of investment is just you, you can't that personal investment is not something you can understate that person is living it every day and even when I met with him it was it was clear the arcade wasn't making money, but it was it was more than about money for him it was about realizing a kind of lifetime dream that probably pro, you know popped up in childhood. so again it's, it's that thing that runs from childhood all the way through to adult life.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, it's just it's it makes me think of just to because my son's a big gamer, like and just he just went out and bought a new it's a whole new thing, but it's like a little Atari joystick, but you can plug it into your computer and it plays old games. Right. And this idea and, and there's so many people who collect Um, even collect games or collect games that are outdated and this sort of moves into your sort of formatting wars because there's that nostalgia there because there's that memory and those games are so important right to that history and so you move in so you move from talking about arcades but you talk about the sort of um platform loyalties and the hardware and how that becomes important and sort of the commodore 64 and the sinclair spectrum and so can you talk a bit about that and the importance of um the those hardwares and what that meant
1: yeah sure so in the uk we we would have so spectrum spectrum is from um a scientist or he was a he was seen as a boffin really uh sir clive sinclair and he he developed very cheap uh technology and that would have been around you know stereos hi-fis those kind of things and often that was kind of build your own and he he had a series of of computers that started off with uh probably the zx80 would be the first one was well well known commercially and the zx81 so they were named after the the years of the um that they were released and then the really big one was was the, the ZX Spectrum. It was called that because it had colors on screen. So the Spectrum was effectively to do with that. And it had a little rainbow um, at the bottom of the screen, at the bottom of the keyboard. This was really, really tricky to code for. So this would have rubber keys. Mm. So if you remember the kind of very early, uh, and I mean very, very early kind of mobile phones, if you can imagine trying to send a text on that, but then these people were, who, who were using these, the coders that were using this would actually be trying to write you know, a thousand lines of code, perhaps, on a rubber keyboard. So the nice nice keyboard you have now, they were out. And then, of course, you have the, the, the Commodore 64, which is a very relatively advanced piece of kit imported from the U.S. And for, for Commodore, the, you know, the, the U.K. market was very important. They had offices in, in the U.K. Um, and they would use these computers because, you know, consoles now, as you know, if your son's playing on a on – a, Xbox or a yep. or a PS4, they're a closed platform that's very difficult to code for. But what you could do with these was if you could play a game, you could also code on them and you could you could um introduce um your own kind of twist on, on different kinds of games as well. Um and this was really based around the fact that um these coders would um bring these kind of twists to to arcade games and it was it was Especially within the context of, of of the UK at that time, it's it's difficult to it's difficult to overstate how how kind of bad it was in, in the 1980s for a lot of young people it was difficult getting into work mm-hmm. and gate would be a way out of that and also it would actually offer them a way into work as well. So they could control their um they could control their employment, they could go to college, go to work, they would also be able to access kind of state benefits at the same time as coding. And in many respects those kind of things have gone from the uk so you don't have that kind of freedom if you like to to be creative because because the state won't pay for you to stay off work wanting you you know code video games or make music and that it does kind of um it does intersect with a very creative time in the uk but also globally so i think it's not necessarily just to do with you know the, the particular social setup of the uk at that time but it was also to do with um the introduction of new technologies and people could experiment with them and i think if you think about the commodore 64 so this uh, chip tunes are very big so a lot of a lot of you know contemporary artists will continue to use the commodore 64 as a well you know an emulation of the commodore 64 to make music and that that kind of thing doesn't go away so you can see just how important the technology is there but the social context was important in the way that kind of fed into it as well um and if the format Wars is interesting because of what it does. They, they effectively try to drive each other. So the magazines would talk about, you know, how much they hated the Commodore and how much they hated the Spectrum, how much they hated the Amstrad. But they were all the same staff working on the same magazine. So they'd all be kind of working in the same place, but churning out copy that was effectively propaganda in many ways. And that would drive, you know, playground wars. So people would, you know, hate on the Commodore, hate on the Spectrum. And it was, it was interesting to see how that kind of played out. So, so at one level, you've got these, these networks that are around distribution, but also you've got kind of competition that goes on as well, which seems to be a, a, a hallmark of capitalism, I guess, the way those kind of things work.
0: Well, and it still continues, right? And it continues to create sort of this, the basis for the video gaming industry and what that looks like, right? So if you have this if you have this platform, you can play these games. If you have this other, but you can't play certain other games and that kind of thing too, and how many platforms do you need <laughs> and all of that.
1: Well, that's right, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. And we've, the interesting thing is we have a platform where you could play all of these. It's called the PC, and that's been around for how long right. has that been around for <laughs> yeah. 30 years. The IBM has been around. So we could all just play PCs, and, but even things like Steambox, which is based on that kind of architecture, doesn't really take off for some reason, and a lot of it is around – it's around branding and it is it is around that that propaganda that comes through and it's still very evident in magazines obviously the internet's taken a lot a lot of that on but you know there's there's still that propagation of format wars and like you rightly say player unknown battlegrounds for instance could be played on on an xbox or or a pc but you can't play it on ps4 i'm not sure about fortnite i don't think i'm young enough to to know about that but i've got the feeling that it might be exclusive to one to one of those consoles you you have that and it's it's the software is is the driver and what i found during this was like hd you know hd tv which which came in in the kind of early early 21st century around 2003 only really took off when the xbox 360 was released and uh computer games and their hardware have always driven technology and i think that's something that's bit overlooked in many ways so Things like disc drives would come with computers, and video games would be would be used on those. And then you have HD TV, um, Bluetooth technologies when you've got you know wireless controllers and things like that. So these are all kind of tried out in, and, and and kind of perfected through through video game platforms and video game technology hardware is but software is just as important. You can't release a console without having a list of killer apps that go alongside it because otherwise it will just sink.
0: Right. No, I found that really interesting too when reading your book and thinking about how. Yes. Yeah, so there's so many games that are now I can at Fortnite because Fortnite is apparently huge with anyone who is like 12 to 14. Um, but like now they're coming out with an app, right? Now I can get eventually I can play Fortnite on my phone, but it's all like I think of Pokemon Go and all those kinds of things where it started in one. System and it started as you know a certain program, and then because of its popularity, it's moved into more convenient for people who aren't like hardcore gamers, right? And that's really interesting. Yeah,
1: it is. I mean, that's one of the things when you think about you think about that. That's become it's it's a very casual game, Pokemon, in many respects. But it did start with very niche, didn't it? So, and I think originally it would have been a kind it would be a card game that's effectively made the transition across media to. to to mobile platforms and that that's where it becomes embedded and in fact now more people play games maybe on Facebook or on mobile phones than they would on on consoles so gaming's mainstream it's not you can't look at it any other way and yet it still has that kind of a kind of you know quite a bit of a dirty attachment to it I suppose and it's it's interesting the way people say oh you're a gamer or so what do you do spend all day in your basement playing games I mean that's that's that that's sometimes how it feels even even now you will put on your cv i'm a gamer but you might say i'll go to the cinema to watch films so yeah it's interesting
0: no that yeah that just makes me laugh because if you ask people even if they're playing candy crush or whatever it might be if you say tell me what a gamer looks like it's going to be yes what you're somebody who you know drinks mountain dew and eats chips and stays in their basement for like four days straight right that's that idea with they're doing the same thing they're playing those games just in a mobile platform um so it, you sort of come to like your sort of the end of your your final chapter or you know your final chapter sort of get at that idea of like the politics of the video games and british video games in the 1980s and how that helps you understand sort of like the class in britain so can you talk a little bit about that and how this sort of um this this investigation into sort of the gaming in the 1980s helps you sort of look at what is going on within Britain during that time?
1: Yeah, sure. I think, I mean, Hampstead is one of the in one of the, the, the the games that I talk about mm-hmm. there. So uh, that, was a, that was a text adventure. And, you know, you would start off in a very, what would be a very, it sounds very stereotypical looking back on it, but it would actually be very typical for a lot of people at that time that you would be in a, a, a poor council flat in in london and, and london at that time was perhaps not the same city that we we understand it to be mm-hmm. today so it was during population decline a lot of a lot of areas that are in poverty and you would start off there and this would bring home that fact through video games that this is you know this is a, a typical or certainly not untypical way of living your life and you i think one of the things you have to remember is that the coders at that time they would actually be doing that so as i said earlier they might be Supported by state benefits, but they weren't sitting around, kind of, you know, drinking alcohol all day. They were trying to do something constructive with their time, and that's that's one of the things that they were doing there. So what they, would, you know, they would code these games, but these were the kind of narratives that they would live live with on a day to day basis, and they're putting that down in in the in the in the game that they um, that they produced, and that was actually revisited by the Guardian not long back. Um, and it was seen. It seems a seminal game in the, in the respect that it's. It, it does. It's. It's an artifact of that time. So you could go back and listen to the music of that time, but the games also that were produced at that time would be the same way. And I also think that you know the way in which um, the, the chapter goes on to discuss race as well, um, uh-huh. which is in there as well. So it took and music is a big thing. So we talked about chip tunes a bit earlier on, but also you know. This was the way in which the, the race would be kind of portrayed through uh, through video games. And again, it was in that kind of urban context. So the, we, we do forget, and I think we do forget how dangerous the world was, um, you know, maybe 40 years ago. So we had the kind of threat of, of, of uh, World War Three, but also in, in, the, in the urban centres in the UK, Liverpool, Birmingham, London, there wasn't really a lot of integration. So and and riots were, were kind of they weren't a daily occurrence, but they were frequent. And this this what this what video games like um rock um, the the characters rocking Rodney and the video game is I can't remember the video game actually I was talking about there, so I apologise. But that, that get, it's ghetto blaster, that's what it was. Okay. And you know it was it was plugging into that kind of idea that you know the the existence of people in, in those in those environments is quite different to the way in which kind of white middle class people would live. So, you know, Rodney goes around to different different places he gets shaken down by the police adverts in the, in the magazines that were promoting the game would have a picture of a policeman on there and rocking Rodney trying to avoid it and he goes to different places and he, he scores different types of drugs and I don't think that that was because that the coder who was Tony Gibson he wasn't trying to do down uh, people in that respect, but he was trying to tell a story through the medium of video games, which was probably trying to be told elsewhere, but actually, you know, gaming was a good way in which to to, to show this because people wouldn't just passively read it like in a newspaper or, or something like that, but they would actually be interacting with it and would understand the way in which, you know, music and and drugs would go together within the kind of context of, of urban life within the UK it's Difficult because you, you can stereotype, so you can go too far and you can stereotype with this. But the games that he produced, I think, were consciously political. So he also did something, um, around the, the UK government as well. Um, where you know, you'd go to you would pick up some kind of polluted seaweed and then go to the 10 Downing Street and throw that at the um the uk government or the uk cabinet which and they were very they were very divisive as well people would hate them and people would you know love them and that's you know that's how divisive it was and again we see that kind of thing today as well we, you know you see that in politics across the world you see it in the us you see it in the uk very divided kind of nations and those video games give a kind of narrative to that as well so i think that's that's something that's very much overlooked i think the politics around games and it's not just in the content it's in the way in which they're produced as well.
0: Right. And so did you sort of conclude with um, sort of where we are now and, and gaming sort of still being on the margins? And so can you talk a little bit about that, sort of how you, your conclusion and where you see the the importance of this and sort of where you see this situated right now? Yeah, I think,
1: I think gaming is, is seen as marginalized. And I think, you know, gaming doesn't do itself any favors. So it does seem to be that, you know, a lot of the bad habits that were – inured in the 1980s and 1990s as well are still the same now so you have this kind of predilection towards seeing that console gaming for instance which is seen as hardcore gaming is a preserve of of young males and young males are stereotypically not you know they either don't look after themselves or they don't particularly care about other people now i don't think that that's the case because i just think that again is the kind of vociferous minority but also the fact that you know. the, the women who, who play games either don't speak up about it enough, and I don't think that's their fault. But they, you know, if if you ask women if they play games, they would say they don't. So, for instance, my wife, you know, as you mentioned before, she played Candy Crush and say, "Are you a gamer?" No. And I think that that's one of the things that, that's interesting that they say they don't play video games, but they would, um, they do play video games, but they perhaps wouldn't identify with gaming and. You know, it, it's it's a real cliche to say this, but video games and video gaming has a, has a, uh, an image problem. So EA, for instance, those economics around games that we talked about as well, you know, have these internal economies in arcades or electronic arts introduced loot boxes into Star Wars Battlefront. And what they're doing there is they're saying, well, you can play Darth Vader if you want, but you, you have to spend either 2,000 hours getting to that point or you can, you know, spend... 200 pounds for instance unlocking that and that that kind of thing that that abuse of gamers creates a, a very kind of toxic atmosphere between the publishers and the gamers and that that comes through in the way in which they seem to be very they're very critical of games but they're also very critical of other people and it's it's a very defensive kind of attitude that they take towards towards other people so forums that you go on gaming forums can be quite, they can be quite nasty and quite toxic. And there is amazing criticality. Now, some of that is to do with lead time. So the fact it takes so long to develop a game, but some of that is a cultural thing and it's going to take, it's unfortunately going to take the input of, you know, people who don't normally play games or won't admit to playing games to say, yes, I've played games and it's part of my life. And this this is what it means to me to, to bring that forward. And, you know, i'm sure most gamers aren't like that and i know that's the case but it is again it's the vociferous minority that that take things through it's always those extremes that get get the traction that then that's to do with you know the way in which we use internet and social media as well which are platforms for gaming themselves so it's kind of circular in many respects
0: right right and that makes sense um this is your book and i don't even know if this is this book and which will be coming a movie is popular in the uk at all um ernest klein's ready player one
1: okay yeah
0: do do you know that book
1: yeah i have read that book already a few years ago yeah
0: yeah it's coming out here in a couple of weeks as a major motion picture but when i was reading your book i thought of that even though it's a novel right because it it sort of harkens back to sort of this 1980s video gaming and even though it sort of moves into the future so i wasn't sure if it had come out there's talk I don't know if it's going to be released in the uk or not, um but it's got that similar sort of like that nostalgia to move back to the 1980s gaming or at least have that knowledge of that eighties sort of gaming culture
1: I think you know there's, there's a couple of interesting things there so the, the university that I work at in Birmingham is where they where they filmed some of those scenes, so early on in the filming they were they were filming uh, in Birmingham because it's it's a closest thing to uh, how Ohio looked in the 1980s. So I guess that's, I don't know if it's a good reflection on Birmingham or <laughs> not to be honest, but <laughs> I, no I don't either. know how, how it looks like, Um but it's also interesting. It's directed by Steven Spielberg. So, um, and he, done, he had already done the forward to Martin Amis's invasion, the space invasion. So he's very, he's always been very into games. So I think that he, you know, in, in, the, in the 1980s, he had a, an arcade machine in his office, you know, so you go to go to see him in Hollywood or wherever he wasn't, he would have games there. Um so that takes it through I, I do try and i mean i 've tried to kind of, and i don't know if it actually comes out, but I do try to avoid a kind of nostalgic look at this so you know i, I do I do feel that you know when i 've just talked about being critical about games the, the industry itself is its own voiced enemy, but it 's also the fact that um i don 't really want to bring that nostalgia to to play on it I want to look at it with it through a critical lens and and seeing it in that way and I feel that klein 's novel it it bring, it's name-dropping in many respects. is bringing a lot of those kind of things out, and it will be... It cashes in on that kind of 1980s nostalgia, so we're all getting older now, so we're all you know, buying Super Nintendos and Japanese sports cars and things like that as we go through our midlife crises. And one of those things is that, you know, we go back to the 1980s when, you know, Ghostbusters was around and Back to the Future, and it's it's wonderful and it's cosy, and it's it, it reminds us of our childhood. But again, I, I'd always say that I, I think the world then was as dangerous if not more dangerous than, than it is today so I think that it's kind of misplaced that nostalgia I do feel that's the case
0: mm-hmm. yeah it sort of gets at like all the happy things but doesn't look at what you were trying to get at in that final chapter right yeah, with really right. thinking about how these things sort of reflect some really dangerous times
1: yeah definitely
0: so we've been talking for a while. I don't know if you're working on anything now. You want to sort of, for you know, last shout out to a new project or if there's any final things you want to mention about this book?
1: Yes. Yeah, so one of the things I was mentioning there was around um, – there's a section there called Disappearing into the Mirror. Now, during the, the 1980s, there was a, a software house called um, Mirrorsoft, and they are owned by Robert Maxwell, who also owned – he owned newspapers in the US, but he had kind of global interests around around the world. And the work that I'm currently doing looks at the influence of Robert Maxwell on on video games. So he he had uh, interests in in Sinclair, so they developed the Spectrum, and he's had interests across um, across video games in the UK and in the US as well. So there was there was a US video game company called Sphere, and they were involved in some kind of it wasn't. It was never. It was never proven. In fact, they were innocent of any kind of wrongdoing in this. But there was. Um, he was moving money around to 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 mask the fact that he was. His companies were losing a lot of money. In actual fact, video the video game companies that he owned were the only ones that were making, or one of the few companies that were making money for him. So that's the, those are the kind of histories that I'm looking at now. Is is the fact that there is there are certain people within. Um, within video gaming history, have a massive influence, but have never really been looked at. And in actual fact, although I've done the kind of research on this and I've followed the money, actually getting that kind of thing published seems to be quite difficult. So I went to MIT Press and you know, asked them if they were interested, and they said, well, we don't really know who Robert Maxwell is, but he was a, he was a big name in the kind of 1980s, and 1990s. So it's difficult uh, sometimes to get recognition, I think, of, of how important these histories are, not just to, to video games, but to... To wider societies society is one, and I always try and bring that to bear on it. It's it's a theoretical and data driven exercise in finding out what's what's important, and it's not just about Britain, and it's not just about US. It's about you know bringing everything together globally from Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and seeing the way these histories are you know constructed globally and how they then act at a kind of local level. So that's what I try to do. But actually, it's it's proving more and more difficult to get a kind of get it get a get an audience for that. So I do appreciate you, you having me on tonight. It's it's really it's really good for you to have such an interest in that, as many you know U.S. scholars do. So it's great for that.
0: Well, thanks so much for talking with me uh, again. This is Alex Wade, whose book "Playback: A Genealogy of 1980s British Video Games." So thanks, Alex, for being here. Thank
1: you. I appreciate that.